0: Hey everyone, I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of the Mark Guy show. This is episode 26 and I want to discuss everything that's happened this week in terms of Donald Trump's rumored and actual actually selected members of his cabinet and what I expect from his presidency and I also want to make it clear that anything you know anything critical that I've said about the left and the left's response to Donald Trump's election as president does not mean that I endorse the campaign that Donald Trump ran or that I think he's going to be a good president or anything like that I mean I've tried to make clear in this podcast many many times that the enemy of my enemy is not my friend so yes Trump is the enemy of a lot of people who I also consider enemies but I also think that Trump will ultimately be an enemy of mine as well and I think what's happened thus far in terms of uh you know what he's done since being elected and the names that have been floated around i think this is going to be more of the same and you're already seeing him starting to come back on many of the promises that he made and really many of the things that got him elected now i wouldn't say that i agree with a lot of the things that he said that that ended up getting him elected but some of the very important things like revealing uh repealing Obamacare he has essentially said yeah maybe we're going to keep some portions in place so him saying that at this point makes leads me to believe it's never going to get repealed maybe it's going to be patchworked but I think the general frame of that legislation is going to stay the same and maybe they'll tinker around the edges a little bit but I think that Obamacare is essentially here to stay and the important portions of it are here to stay unfortunately I you know, I've been critical of Obamacare many times on this show. I've been critical of a lot of the redistributionist schemes by government, and this is yet another one. You know, we, we, we lament the fact that young people are struggling to buy houses and to be able to move out of move out of their parents' houses and get out on their own and be able to support themselves, yet we keep adding more and more burden to young and healthy people to pay for the older and the sick. I mean, in the case of Obamacare, that's exactly what is it. what it is. It's the young and healthy subsidizing the old and sick. That's the whole, the whole uh, notion of pre-existing conditions not being able to price accordingly. The insurance companies can't price that risk accordingly. It means that those with less risk inherently are going to have to pay more so that everybody else can pay less. It's kind of equalizing the playing field. It's kind of a, a socialism in health insurance. And that's just one of many things that we've placed on young people's backs. So that was one area where I was able to get on board with Trump a little bit and, you know, the Republicans winning both the Senate and the House. So having a a Republican-dominated federal government at least gave me a little hope that that may happen. You know, I disagree with the Republicans on a whole lot of things, but that seemed to be pretty much across the board something that they were willing to agree on. But of course, I'm already starting to be pessimistic that that's ever gonna happen not that I was ever optimistic that it would happen I was cautiously optimistic but I don't think it's going to happen just coming from his comments I'll make sure to post those comments in the uh, in the suggested readings links on the on the website underneath uh, underneath the posting of the episode uh, but let's get back to his nominees or his rumored potential nominees so he's already proposed he's already said he's going to nominate jeff sessions for attorney general and um, steve bannon's going to have a position in the white house that's the the breitbart guy uh mike flynn is going to be national security advisor and then mike pompeo is going to be the head of the cia and all of, well all of these except mike flynn so session and or uh, sessions in pompeo they need senate confirmation but you've got to assume that they're probably going to be confirmed i i would be shocked if either of them didn't go through uh rance priebus is going to be trump's chief of staff and then everything else right now is rumors so you're seeing some of the same old names being thrown around from the past you're Hearing New Gingrich's name, Rudy Giuliani, um, Chris Christie, you know, a lot of the, Sarah Palin, a lot of these people that have talked a lot, said a lot of positive things about Trump. I think once they realized that he's their best shot at power, they kind of all jumped on board behind him. Christie was probably the first one to really do it. I mean, he, he really jumped on Trump's bandwagon pretty early on, right after Christie. Dropped out essentially. So you've got to think he has a position of some sort. He was rumored as possible attorney general, but they're also saying that he may have a little bit of trouble getting confirmed. So maybe he ends up getting appointed to a position that doesn't require Senate confirmation. But really, what this all shows is Trump is bringing insiders to Washington. He's not going to drain the swamp. Yes, that was a great campaign slogan or a great little tagline that I liked, even though I said from the beginning, I don't think it's going to happen. I think he's going to get to Washington, and it's going to be essentially business as usual. I mean, I I think he's going to shake up things a little bit. He's not completely status quo, but there's not going to be radical change in Washington, D.C. Everybody's already falling in line behind Trump, and you have a lot of the same faces around there. And it's really this government behind the scenes that runs our lives. and I think that pulls the puppet strings far more than our elected representatives actually do. And I think that that's going to happen when you give the federal government this much power. And I've discussed this time and time again, so I don't want to rehash it too much. But when you give government this much power, the central government this much power, and it's so far removed from virtually every American You know, we're so far away from Washington, D.C. We don't really know what goes on behind the scenes whatsoever. The media hasn't done its job in exposing what's going on. Thankfully, kind of this independent media has come about and they've uncovered a lot more than the mainstream media has been able to in recent history. But still, we don't know much of what goes on behind the scenes. It's one big black box to 99% of Americans. And so we don't really have any control over this government. Most of them are unelected. It's a bunch of lobbyists and a bunch of technocrats that we don't have any control over. We don't elect into office. And then even the people that we do elect end up becoming puppets of that you know that whole system that's in place in Washington, D.C. And there's a reason why the counties surrounding Washington, D.C. are the richest in the United States. There's a reason for that. It's because of how much power the federal government holds and how the same people have been able to hold on to power there and hold on to the real power. It's not the elected power necessarily. So all this talk about we need to impose term limits and anything like that, all it's, all they are are patchwork possible solutions. I wouldn't even say that they're solutions. They're talking about uh, you know campaign contribution limits, anything like that. It's not getting at the fundamental issue, which is that there's too much power in the hands of the federal government and more specifically the executive branch but really in washington dc as a whole that's the big issue and trump's not going to do anything to change that so i think that's the important news that's coming out of everybody that's being rumored maybe he's still going to prove me wrong but i'm not optimistic about that i think that it's going to be similar to the past few regime uh, the past few regimes that we've had there was very little difference from the Bush years to the Obama years. There wasn't really much difference from the from the Clinton years to the Bush years. And I don't think there's going to be much difference from the Obama years to the Trump years. That's what made it so funny to me, these people crying over the election and people acting like things are going to fundamentally change. I, they're not going to fundamentally change. And it would be a good thing if they fundamentally changed. I mean, if anything, people should be crying over the fact that we're going to have similar government, that we're still gonna have this expansive federal government dominating our lives. That's what people should be crying over. That's what's really scary. And I get that it's scary that you know your person didn't get into office, your woman didn't get into office, and you realize how powerful the president is now. And so it scares you that somebody else is gonna hold that power. But the Republicans are not very different from the Democrats. They're, they're all in favor of generally the same things. They're in favor of big government. They're in favor of a large military. They're in favor of the U.S. being overseas and being all over the world and having essentially an empire without actually owning territory, but having the military all over the world. They're in favor of of big social spending um, and transfer programs. And they're not looking to cut what really needs to be cut in order for this country to continue and in order to get on decent financial footing. So Trump had said some good things that made me optimistic earlier on in his campaign. He toned it down throughout the rest of it when he saw the kind of response that he got. And he got probably worse response from a lot of people for saying some of these things and for any of the offensive things that he said throughout his campaign. But when he made a passing reference to having... U.S. creditors. So those that have lent the U.S. money have to take a haircut because the U.S. can't afford to repay its debts. I mean, the backlash he got from that was incredible. And then he ended up walking back that statement. And essentially, he said that the U.S. would should try to uh, basically refinance the debt over longer term and take take advantage of lower interest rates when most of the debt already is at you know, is pretty short-term, so they're constantly rolling it over over and over again. So that was how he tried to walk back that statement. But he made passing notions to uh, being very critical of the Federal Reserve, saying that his first 100 days in office are going to audit the Fed. Um, just very critical of the Fed calling it basically a, a political organization that all, all they do is serve the group that's in power at the time. All they do is serve the interests of the federal government. More specifically, the executive branch. Um, so he was he was critical of a lot of things that I've been critical of on this podcast. I think a lot of people that lean libertarian are also critical of. But he fell away from that, getting deeper and deeper into the election. And I think when it started to become real that you know he's going to be the Republican nominee, and then it started to look. He had some points there throughout the clinton versus trump fight where trump was basically 50 50 with her he wasn't 50 50 with her leading up to the election it looked like clinton was almost certainly going to win based on all the numbers that were out there Uh, but i think he started to play it safe a little bit and it's funny that's probably one of my biggest criticisms of his campaign is that he played it safe in those areas where you know i thought hey maybe trump does actually understand the real issues and understand what actually has to be done making these kind of comments about things being structurally wrong, you know, talking about the Fed criticizing the Fed. I mean, who who really criticizes the Fed? What presidential candidate does besides Ron Paul? Nobody really. I mean, nobody wants to threaten the Fed. First of all, most voters don't know what it is or what it does. So there's not it's not really economically or it's not it's not politically sound, politically economical to talk about the Fed, but Trump did at least earlier on. He uh, was critical of the U.N. as well. Um, A lot of these things that I think I could have gotten on board with if he had stuck with them and had some sort of consistent, principled position on those things, but he didn't. He just kind of made passing references to it, and I think that's what happens when he gets up there and he just speaks off the cuff. Sometimes he's going to say things, and that may not be his opinion. Maybe he's echoing something that he's heard recently, and then all it takes is for him to hear something different down the line and then he's going to say something different on that same issue. So I, I, I think that's really all that happened. I think it was me getting maybe a little bit too optimistic about some of those things that he said. And it, don't get me wrong, I was plenty horrified by the majority of his positions and I think a lot of those things are being confirmed now. I still do think though that if you had to pick between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Trump is the preferable president and he's less likely to get us into a huge armed conflict with russia which i think that was really what i was most scared of at least militarily and being a young male being scared of being drafted into a conflict like that where if you really got into a serious conflict with russia probably people would have to be drafted into the military i mean there's a reason why they keep the draft in force why you still have to register for it it's there to be used it's and it probably will be used if and when the U.S. is in another major conflict again. So that's what I was most scared of. And I think a war like that would have affected, you know, some of these people that are most critical of Trump being elected. I mean, you're seeing a lot of minorities come out in full force and calling Trump a racist and basically acting like they're going to be rounded up and, you know, firing squads are going to be killing them in the streets. But I think Anything under a Hillary Clinton administration, that war would have been far more damaging for minorities than anything that Donald Trump is going to be able to do. So I think we should at least be thankful for that, but at the same time, we need to be very critical of Trump at the same time, because this is going to be a government that continues to consolidate more and more power, just like happened under Clinton, just like happened under Bush, just like happened under Obama. The same thing is going to happen under a Trump administration talked about adding a trillion dollars in new spending when this country already runs five hundred billion dollar plus deficits on you know on a yearly basis and adds at least one trillion dollars to the debt in a given year, if not one point five trillion or more because of all the unfunded liabilities that don't, that don't get caught in that actual deficit number. So the the debts going up by more than what the deficit number is on a yearly basis. So Trump wants to add a trillion dollars in new spending. He wants to reduce the highest marginal tax rates at the same time. And that's just a recipe for fiscal disaster. So we need to be critical of Trump. And I'm hoping that once the snowflakes on the left really calm down about this election, realize there's nothing you can do about the election. But let's start to fight executive power. Let's start to fight what you really allowed to happen. Because... They were all critical of executive power all throughout the George Bush years. All of a sudden Barack Obama comes to office and they're nowhere to be seen. Really the same thing happened with a lot of the right as well. You know, they let Bush do whatever he wanted because he was their guy. Then Obama comes into office and now it's war. So I'm not saying the right didn't do this as well, but the left and the Never Trump people on the right as well. I mean, we need to join forces to try to fight this this increase in uh, in federal power and in particular executive power and now the republicans hold all branches of government so no people talk about well we want things to get done so maybe it's good that we've got where the republicans controlling the senate and controlling the house and a republican in the white house but if anything gridlock has been pretty good for l- at least limiting all the new legislation that can come through congress that further controls our lives that further impedes on liberty so, I think having all Republicans there, and I've already talked about how really Republicans are not any different from Democrats. They both fundamentally are in favor of the same things. Yes, there are some differences or some single issue differences, and that's how they try to drive home to us that these are two very different parties that believe very different things, but that's really not the case. Yes, are their positions different on abortion? Of course. Are their positions generally different on same sex marriage? Yes. But in terms of what really matters, I'm not saying that those issues don't matter, but in terms of actually the operation of the country, in terms of you know sending people off to war, in terms of the size of government, in terms of how we're going to steal money from one group of people and give it to another and all these redistributionist schemes, they're in agreement, they're in general agreement on all of those things. and. The Democrats like to try to portray the Republicans as these budget hawks that are coming in and trying to impose austerity and they're going to ruin people's lives and people are going to be sleeping in the streets and eating in soup kitchens when this is all said and done. But anything the Republicans have proposed, like I'll use Paul Ryan as an example, but his budget proposals, they don't balance the budget for like 20 years, 20 plus years. It's, It's absolutely ridiculous and it's not austerity. It's not, all it is is reducing the rate of growth of government, which you cannot call austerity. They're not small government policies. They're slight deviations from each other. And that's really the difference between the Democrat, the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. That's it. There's single issue differences, and they'll vary by a few percentage points on, okay, what are our budget projections? But what really matters they're the same. And that's why more and more people are waking up to the idea that we need an alternative. And I don't know I don't know what the best way is to get that third party alternative or whether the best way is to try to move the Republican Party more toward a libertarian uh, ideology, you know more in that direction. But after this election, I don't see that happening. You know, with Donald Trump's success, and he ran on an absolutely anti-libertarian, you know, absolutely anti-libertarian stances. Complete populism, talking about protectionism, talking about building a wall, talking about increasing government spending, trying to give everybody everything they want, wanting to beef up the military. You know, all of these things are generally against what the libertarians would do if, if they were in power. And it worked for the Republicans, so I think that's going to be a playbook for them moving forward. I think they see that's our recipe to winning these Midwest states, w- winning these swing states, where we'd had trouble in the past being able to win over these working class voters because they would vote Democrat, and you know they would vote for the party that they thought were that they thought was in their best interests. And I think it was more because of the Democrat union relationship and the Democratic Party was seen as the party of of unions but unions are losing their influence now it's about what 10% of US workers i believe somewhere in that in that range 10% of US workers are actually in unions so unions really are not important anymore and i think that that importance is going away so republicans found that the way to the way to reach these voters is to preach protectionism and any party that's moving in the direction of protectionism i don't see all of a sudden waking up and moving in a libertarian-ish direction soon after especially when they've had such electoral success with trump kind of pushing the party single-handedly in that direction so i don't know what the i don't know what the playbook is i think it's to continue to form coalitions with whoever we can in order to try to achieve our goals and it's going to be incremental you know, for the anarcho-capitalists out there, it's we can't go overthrow the state immediately. We're going to have to work in the direction of liberty. And I think working with whoever we can in order to achieve that is really our only option at this point in time. And I'm hoping that maybe another disastrous presidency, another disastrous four years, which I expect it to be. I don't expect it to be a good presidency. Will it be maybe slightly better than what Hillary Clinton's would have been? probably because we probably won't be engaged in a world war by the end of these 4 years but I think things will generally be worse I think there's going to be a recession a pretty strong recession over the next 4 years and I wouldn't be surprised if the response to that is a Bernie Sanders type from the Democratic Party so you think okay if Trump didn't succeed you know they've all Republicans they've a Republican dominated government and if there's a recession in these next couple of years then you got to think even though in 2018, it doesn't look good for the Democrats right now in order to, to regain control of the um, of Congress based on who's up for re-election. But at the same time, if things really go downhill over the next two years, then Democrats are going to have a huge leg up in those elections relative to what we're seeing now. You know, Right now, we're just seeing Republicans coming off a very strong election season across the board, so... Now we're looking at 2018 and thinking that same success is probably going to carry forward. But if things are disastrous over the next two years, you got to think that gives the Democrats momentum going into 2018 and then, more importantly, momentum going into 2020 because you've got to think if it's a bad four years, then the turn is going to be to go back to the other party and I think it'll be in a more socialist, European-style type, uh, type Democratic candidate because I think that's the direction the Democratic Party is moving in. Because you look at the mistake that they just made, putting up Hillary Clinton as their nominee with all of her the the huge skeletons in her closet, all her ties to big banks, all her ties to rich donors, and all the corruption generally in her and her husband's past. You take all that into account and you look at how Donald Trump, who ran a pretty ragtag campaign, who the whole mainstream was against, and he still was able to beat her. The mainstream's by far favored candidate. He was still able to beat her. So you've got to think the Democratic Party now is regrouping, thinking, okay, what do we need to do now moving forward in order to be competitive in these elections? And I think what they're going to ultimately do is move further left and move out into Bernie Sanders territory and continue to push the rhetoric that the rhetoric that they've talked about Bernie I'm using as a big example, but you know Elizabeth Warren's another example of this. Maybe they'll nominate somebody younger than those two, because those two will be pretty old by the time the next election rolls around. Uh, Warren's not as old as Bernie. I don't know exactly how old she is, but Bernie will be... I mean, he was already pretty old in this cycle, so I'd be surprised if he was going to run again. I wouldn't be shocked, but... Um, I I would be pretty surprised if he was to run again. But somebody in that mold, I think, will be the direction that the Democrats move in the, next, uh, in the next presidential election cycle. And if the Trump presidency goes poorly, I think that's what the next president's going to look like. Which is very scary to me. I mean, that's scarier Bernie and the things that he advocated. I don't know if that's scarier necessarily than Trump. They're both scary in their own ways, but... I think it is. I mean the things that he talks about really not having a respect for private property rights, wanting to grossly expand the power of government and you know wanting to basically make healthcare and higher education completely government funded, taxpayer funded. And we already see the dangers in increasing government's roles, government's role in those sectors. It's made it significantly more expensive and caused costs to rise far more rapidly than the rate of inflation. And he wants to push things further in that direction, which I think is a disaster, especially when this country's already broke. Um, But I think that's going to be what 2020 looks like. And I already said I think this Trump presidency is not going to go well. And I think once the economy crashes, which I think is bound to happen, regardless of who got into office, really regardless of what the government was to do at this time, This bubble is going to burst at one point or another, and Trump's come in. The stock market's done well since he's been elected, so people think somehow that all of our problems have magically gone away because a, a new guy got elected into the into the White House, which couldn't be farther from the truth. The structural problems are all still here, and this is all still pretty much one gigantic bubble. I mean the stock market is definitely overvalued looking at fundamentals, the US stock market I'm talking about. The bond market looks like a large bubble as well. You've got the student loan bubble. It looks like there's an auto loan bubble as well. There are just so many expanding at once that you don't really know where it's gonna start, but something's gotta burst. I think something will be the spark that kind of lights everything on fire at once. Uh, But I don't know what that spark is going to be. But it's bound to happen sometime during this next four years. And it'll be blamed on Trump because people think the president controls the economy. The president can unilaterally move the economy in a particular direction. Which, it's sad that the president has enough power for people even to be able to hold that thought in their mind. Um, And the president can do a lot to at least prolong the existence of these bubbles and put off them bursting by basically working hand in hand with the fed in order to continue to inflate the money supply continue to keep interest rates low and to not try to do anything to prick those bubbles i know the president doesn't necessarily i said work hand in hand yes there is independence there but the fed really has become a political tool and that's something trump said in his campaign i talked about that earlier during this episode uh but they can they can do things to prolong the bubble from bursting, but you can't prolong the inevitable forever. And they've prolonged the inevitable coming out of the Great Recession. Things weren't allowed to reallocate. We weren't really allowed to have the longer and deeper prior recession than we actually had. And the bubbles were just reinflated again. And so now they're out there waiting to burst again, and they're bound to burst during these next four years. And Janet Yellen's out there talking about now that the case is getting stronger to raise rates in December. How many times have they said that, though? I do think they're going to, especially with the stock market having been on a pretty nice upward trajectory. Once again, the Fed's going to say, we don't look at the stock market when we're making our decisions, but that's ridiculous. They obviously do because that's how people are gonna judge, you know, for better or worse, that's how people are gonna judge what the Fed does. So I think they're gonna look at December as being a good time to continue the very, very slow upward trend in interest rates and probably hike the Fed Fund's target another 25 basis points to a target of 50 to 75 basis points. Uh, But there's still time on that front. We don't really know what's going to come out in terms of economic information between now and then. And like I said, we've heard that story time and time again from the Fed. Janet Yellen making those kind of comments, other people from the Fed making those kind of comments, and they haven't raised interest rates except one time last December. But I do think to save face, they're going to this December. And I was correct all year I said I don't think they're going to be able to, to raise them all year. I made a bet on it, so I put my money where my mouth was, and I won that bet. I didn't take it out all the way to December, but I did it through. I don't know. I don't know which meeting it was through, but it was one of the later one of the later meetings in the year, and I won that bet. Uh, but I do think now they're they are going to raise at n- another 25 basis points really to save face and because they've got enough of a cushion now I guess in the stock market where even if things were to decline somewhat significantly because they've had steady upward gains over the last couple of weeks, it means that there's there's some gains there to absorb that uh, absorb that hike in rates. And as it gets closer to probably the markets will price in what they think is going to happen so it won't be an immediate crash or anything when that happens but you'll probably see this growth start to stagnate or start to become you know start to become a decline up until the time when they say whether or not they're going to raise interest rates and I think the markets will price in that decline. so if the Fed comes out and says that we're not hiking interest rates, you'll probably see it bump back up beyond whatever its previous high was but like I said it's it's difficult to make that call now there still is quite a bit of time before the December meeting and new information could come out between now and then. So I'll be talking about this plenty leading up to uh, leading up to that meeting. So another thing I wanted to talk about, and I was thinking about making this an entire episode on its own, but I don't know if I'm going to have enough content to make it an entire episode or not. So I figured I'd talk about it today. I finished the book today, so it's still fresh in my mind, and I don't want to really lose anything and do it tomorrow or Sunday. So I'll talk about this now. So I've gotten into, you know, a lot of, discussions with people and watched a lot of things on the internet, read a lot of things on the Internet and talking about taxes and talking about income taxes and a lot of people out there advocate a tax on capital. So a tax on a yearly tax on capital imposed to stop the terrors of income and wealth inequality. I mean primarily wealth inequality, but it also affects income inequality because if the highest you know if the if the largest capital holders own less and aren't able to accumulate it as quickly they'll earn slightly less income on that uh, on that capital but in these discussions one book that kept coming up time and time again was Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty and this is hailed primarily by those on the left Uh, that's who I've seen it coming from I'm not saying that people on the right haven't advocated his works as well. But this is is a French economist. He very much comes from that European social state kind of mindset. And those governments are structured somewhat differently from ours in terms of they've had these generous social benefits in, in effect for longer than the United States has in many cases. And they're more entrenched they're more highly taxed in general than the United States. Not the United Not that the United States citizenry is not taxed highly. And he shows in his book. Right now the US citizenry is taxed at about 30% total uh, in terms of federal taxation. And then back in the early 20th century, pretty much every rich government or the government of a rich country in the Western world as well as Japan, they all had taxes between five to 10% of income was what was ultimately collected from the populace. So the amount of taxes that is uh, that are collected now far higher than what was collected early in the 20th century. And then you compare that with Sweden, which has the highest taxes of the countries that he looked at, and their citizenry is taxed at about 50% of total income, which is Pretty insane, but that's now the range. It's more like 30%. The United States is the low end of taxation in the rich countries in the Western world, at least the ones that he looked at. And those are the major countries from his perspective and, and where he could find the, the best data on these on these things over over the longest period of time is the United States, France, Germany, Sweden, and, uh, and Britain. But anyways, what Piketty ultimately says in this book and his thesis. It's a long book. I probably wouldn't recommend many people to read it, but I really wanted to read it in order to be able to come back at people that try to use this as an argument. And I can't really refute it because I haven't read it and people don't do a good job of characterizing what Piketty actually says. I have read some people that I would more align myself with ideologically saying that he's in the ilk of Karl Marx And that he quotes Karl Marx often in favorable light. And I wouldn't say that's the case either. He's not very favorable to quoting Karl Marx. But I do think that he is a statist in in many ways. He's not a communist. And he says, he does mention the importance of private property. And that we want to maintain private property. And that capitalism is generally good. But he continually talks about democracy regaining control over capitalism which seeing that phrase over and over again just concerns me on the face of it because he is he's making the assumption and i've talked about that when i discussed the book the myth of the rational voter and i've talked about the inherent downsides of democracy the inherent flaws of democracy but he doesn't seem to acknowledge the flaws of democracy and so he basically says that what we need to do rather than leaving you know leaving our fates in the hands of markets, this is kind of how he would phrase it, rather than leaving our fates in the hands of markets, we need to let democratic governance take control over capitalism. And we collectively need to determine what are the best solutions in order to do that. When, of course, what's going to happen if you democratically determine uh, how are we going to distribute wealth? Obviously, you're going to have the entire lowest end of the population saying, yes, let's take money from the richest among us because that, in theory, benefits us while hurting them. That's how the whole income tax was originally pushed on the American people and really on the rest of the world. But the American people were very resistant to the idea of an income tax, and especially the idea of a permanent income tax. And so it was pushed on on the American people by just being on very rich people initially. And then gradually it worked its way down the income bracket. Inflation, as inflation went up, the brackets didn't rise accordingly, so more and more people entered into the brackets that had to pay taxes, the rates rose, and the two world wars obviously played into that tremendously in terms of the government wanting to increase its revenues, and now we're in a position where a substantial portion of the population pays income taxes. And every worker pays income taxes to the federal government. If you count social security tax or payroll tax as income tax, which really it is, uh, but every worker pays that. I mean, virtually every worker. There are <clears throat> there are some certain industries that are exempt, but the vast majority of us do pay payroll taxes, and our employers pay payroll taxes on our behalfs. And then it's something like fifty percent of Americans actually do pay income tax uh, so you have pretty much all of anybody that works in the United States is taxed by the federal government now and that was not how it was pushed on us to start but anyways I don't want to get too much uh, you know too much into the weeds on the history of, of how these things were sold to us but I do want to give you a quote that kind of goes to show Piketty's belief in the government's importance in terms of regulating public life and in terms of equalizing opportunities. Uh, So this is one of the first quotes I wrote down throughout the book. I like to jot down quotes periodically just to remember kind of important points. But quote, It is also important to note, however, that the gap between disposable income and national income measures by definition the value of public services from which households benefit, especially health and education services financed directly by the public treasury. Such transfers in kind are just as valuable as the monetary transfers included in disposable income. They allow the individual's concerned to avoid spending comparable or even greater sums on private producers of health and education services. So basically there he's saying that he believes that the government, by offering services, can offer them at a similar or reduced cost to what the private sector cost would be for those same services. Which... Time and time again, we've seen that's not the case, that government is inherently less efficient than the private sector and that for its flaws, markets are the best way to both increase quality, bring down costs over time. So that quote right there just kind of goes to show you Piketty's belief in the efficacy of kind of the the welfare state or the redistributionist state. In terms of providing certain services, health and education services, very much in the European model where virtually all of the European countries have at least some form of either heavily subsidized or free higher education system and highly subsidized or free healthcare system. But back to his main points, so anybody that's heard anything about this book knows that he is decrying increasing wealth and income inequality, more specifically wealth inequality, in really the, the rich world, so in you know Western Europe, Japan, uh, the United States, Canada, really in, in all of the generally rich countries, inequality is increasing back to levels close to what we saw early in the 20th century. And he basically profiles most of these countries at that point in time is far less, um, you know, far less egalitarian than they are today. And there were more structures in society. There's more structure in society and there tended to be a, an elite class of, uh, basically renters of, of of people that had so much capital that they were able to just live off the interest perpetually. There wasn't really inflation to erode that away. There were safe investments where they were able to get a rate of return above what the growth rate was in uh, in GDP. So in in incomes for workers on an average year, uh, in an average year, and talks about really the importance of among the elite class of trying to, for example, get your daughters to marry into a big fortune, because that was really the only way to have a life of luxury like that. It wasn't really possible with a life of labor to achieve the kind of luxury that these people at the very top of society were able to enjoy. And he says things have changed since then, but we're rapidly increasing back in that direction. He's especially critical of the United States and of inequality, uh, the the trends in inequality in the United States. Um, He looks at the capital to income ratio. That's a a ratio that he uses quite often as kind of a gauge of the importance of capital versus the importance of labor at a given time. He uses that as a proxy for the amount of capital in the society. It's a fair market value of capital over uh, a country's given income in a year, and then he looks at income trends in terms of how much has gone to the top 1%, how much has gone to the bottom 50%, uh, and how much has gone to the intermediate 40%—kind of the middle to upper middle class. Looking at the top 10%, and yeah, the top 1%, the top 0.1%, uh, and he uses both of those as proxies for the importance of capital. Uh, income inequality, and he also looks at capital or wealth inequality over time, and really in all of those measures, basically the importance of capital went down during the World Wars, and has been increasing. It, it, it stayed pretty low for a while coming out of the war. Generally, I'm I'm generalizing across countries, but this is the the, the trend you see pretty much across the board, and then the importance of capital wealth inequality. And income inequality all rose back up pretty much after 1980. And he blames this trend, especially in uh, the United States and Britain, because the increase has been far starker than it was in France or Germany or the other countries for which he has fairly reliable data. But he attributes this to the ideas of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and the conservative environment of kind of the the early 1980s, and that we've been following that trend ever since. And what his ultimate theory is, and it rests on this idea that if the rate of return on capital is greater than the growth rate of of the economy, so the growth rate in incomes essentially, because the growth rate of GDP is essentially the growth rate in incomes, then capital will continue to perpetuate itself forever because the people that ha- that hold capital can live off the income that it produces and reinvest just a portion of that income and then the capital will conceivably continue to grow and the larger that difference is between r and g those are the letters he uses r is the rate of return on capital and then g is the growth rate of income the larger that difference is the faster capital will accumulate for uh you know for those that hold it and it's typically the top one percent and that's uh he he uses those numbers because it does fit kind of the discussion of the one percent versus the 99 percent of the day so that's really his thesis and that's what he goes about the entire book supporting i would recommend the book for the data that it has in it in terms of like i said the capital to income ratio and talking about uh Wealth inequality and income inequality over time. There's a lot of good information in this book. And the first three parts are generally pretty good. His bias does come out quite a bit. I read a quote there. I think that was from part one or part two. There are four parts to the book. Uh, and that's where his his bias does start to come out at certain points. But there's a lot of good data in there. So I appreciated that portion of it. And then part four is where he goes into his hypothesis about how to solve the fundamental uh, fundamental paradox essentially of, of capitalism or the, the fatal flaw of capitalism which is that r is greater than g and the rate of return on capital is trying to be greater than the growth rate of income over time now that rate of return on capital actually was lower than the growth rate in the, in the rich countries over the last about 100 years so pretty much from the beginning of world war one until today. If you take it if you look at the economy in fifty year chunks, the rate of return on capital has actually been slightly below the growth rate of the of GDP, growth rate of incomes over those time spans. But the trend is now we're seeing rates of return on capital higher than growth rates because growth rates are stagnating. Basically all the rich countries have kind of equalized. There isn't really a catch-up effect anymore, and really the the growth coming out of World War II, really the growth that was that stagnated during those long periods of war, accelerated quickly to basically equalize everybody at a at a higher level of prosperity. But growth has slowed down in recent years, and the importance of capital is returning. So he's theorizing that basically capital accumulation could continue basically indefinitely among that top 1% essentially and the top 0.1% he points out for special mention as the amount of capital that they control and return to the far more inegalitarian societies that we saw basically before World War I so saw at the turn of the, uh, the, turn of the 19th century going into the, into the 20th century. So what he advocates to stop this, and I'm jumping ahead to, to part four, if you don't want want it to be ruined for you before reading it, if you're planning to, to read it, don't listen to this. But he advocates a, ideally, from his perspective, a global tax on capital. So a, a progressive global tax on capital. And this would require, in his mind, a global authority to be able to collect this tax uh, international sharing of all financial and banking data to be able to determine who owns what assets, be able to give everybody an inventory, so you couldn't hide assets in certain tax havens, um, and then administer a global tax on um, on large capital stock, basically. And he says this will have the benefit of being able to collect, inform- collect information on who owns what, and he talks about it in terms of enforcing property rights, which is not, He he's saying that to try to appeal to people, to more centrist people and people on the right, talking about that being an important part of this. It's really not. It's about limiting the fortunes of the very rich. But I disagree with a lot of his anecdotal evidence, and he talks about the importance of inherited income on the Forbes, the Forbes billionaire list and you see new entrepreneurs constantly sprouting up on that list and you haven't seen the same people dominating that list over and over again. If you looked back at, back during the turn of the prior century, there were, I mean, a list like that would have been dominated by lots of very familiar names, a lot of old money, but much of the, you know, much of the money on, on the current list is new money, it's money Basically earned almost entirely during the person's current lifetime. It's, th- these are not inherited fortunes. He focuses on the heir to the L'Oreal fortune as one example of of inherited wealth, and because it's greater than what Steve Jobs' wealth was at the end of the at the end of his career, the uh, Piketty basically concludes that a lot of this is unearned, and you know there's a lot of people on this list that they aren't there because of merit and a big part of its luck and I'm not saying that merit has everything to do to has everything to do with earning fortune and there, there is luck involved. So I don't want to say that it's all merit based, but I think he uses anecdotal evidence kind of in a, in a sleight of hand type of way. And I think that the the importance of inherited money has definitely decreased over time without a doubt. Um, so that's one of the criticisms I had of him off the bat. Um, and then just the idea of a global authority to tax capital is very scary because I could see this growing into a large, unaccountable body. And he talks about, oh well it could be democratically elected and you know, these are the things you would need, and it could all be from the governments of the of all the participating countries, and he talks constantly about well, if it's democratic then it's fine. But like I've said, obviously a lot of the poorest among the particular country, the poorest 50% probably will jump on board, just like they jumped on board with the income tax in the United States. I'm using that as an example again, because they thought they would never be touched by it. They thought, oh, well, anything that takes from these people that I see with jets and big houses and everything, anything that's taken from them probably should be a benefit to me over time. So I should support that. So I think it, it very well could be democratically supported, but I, I think it's very scary. Any sort of global government like that is scary. It's scary enough having a large national government that you can't really control. Imagine having a large global government that you have no control over. And of course it would be started with, okay, we're going to impose a 0.1% tax on all fortunes over, uh, what, $1 billion, or it'd be some some large amount Fifty million dollars, point 0.1% tax on all of those uh, on all of those capital stocks that individuals hold. That's how it would start, and they collect all this information, and they get all the countries to share banking and financial data with each other, and then it becomes okay. Now it's gonna be a two percent tax on everybody above fifty million, and now ten to fifty million has to pay a one percent tax. You know, and it's gonna keep coming down coming down the line until everybody's hit by it, just like the income tax has developed and just like taxes on capital would develop in the United States. So he he says that this is his ideal solution. And obviously the ideal solution probably would be very difficult to achieve. So then he says the next best thing is for countries. He focuses on Europe because he's from Europe, he's French, um, that Europe should join together and have basically a wealth tax imposed by the European Union or imposed by, you know, a Europe-wide body, whether or not it's affiliated with the European Union or not. Uh, But just the idea of that scares me on the face of it, like not even going into his analysis or whether or not it would be beneficial or not. It it scares me on the face of it. It should scare everybody, that kind of power being vested in, in an unaccountable body. Another thing I think he doesn't touch on enough is the fact that I think that accumulating large fortunes is a big reason why these entrepreneurs continue to work for as long as they do. They basically work up until their deaths in a lot of cases because they want to be able to leave on that legacy to their kids or have a foundation that's going hundreds of years from now. And I think the more that you punish that incentive the more likely you already have these entrepreneurs leave after their first big hit. You know, when okay, I've got enough now to sustain myself very well for the rest of my life. I'm going to go off into retirement. I'm going to be taxed heavily each year on this anyways. So how much use is there, is there for me to continue to accumulate more and more when it's going to be very difficult for me to pass this on to my heirs? And then if my heirs do get it, it's going to be taxed at a high enough rate that it's going to be eroded away over time. So I think that that does play a big role into why people continue to work. And we want the smartest, most capable entrepreneurs among us to work as long as possible. And he basically says that, well, just because somebody has a great idea at 30 or 40 doesn't mean they're going to have a great idea at 70 or 80. Well, then great, you know, let them continue to use their time. And if they fail miserably, then they're going to be hit in the, they're going to be hit on the wealth side by continuing to invest their money into whatever new ideas they have or the company they're working for at the time, let them do that. Uh, but I think he doesn't take into account that incentive enough. I think that's a big part of it. I, I do think it's a right that what I accumulate in my lifetime, I mean, I'm already, if I'm already paying income taxes especially, if I'm already paying constant constant funds to the state on a yearly basis on what I earn – then what I'm able to accumulate after the fact is mine. That's private property, and a big part of my private private property is I should be able to give it to my heirs without then the government needing to needing to put their hands on it again. Of course, now I'm talking about the estate tax, but basically the idea of a capital tax is the estate tax, but imposed on your capital on a yearly basis. So not only would be would these people be hit on the income side and be taxed on the income that they earn, but now they would also be taxed on the capital that they hold. And here's a quote that I think explains, kind of encapsulates what I'm saying and my criticism of him. But here's here's a quote I wrote down. No matter how justified inequalities of wealth may be initially, fortunes can grow and perpetuate themselves beyond all reasonable limits and beyond any possible rational justification in terms of social utility. So you see there, he's using the words reasonable and rational and social utility. When what I accumulate, that's my business, that's, that's my private property. And it's not up for somebody else to deem what's reasonable or what's rational. Because that kind of judgment, that kind of gray area judgment, is what has gotten us into the income tax fiasco, where now everybody is paying into this system, and where we've had the state expand beyond all limits that were originally intended for the United States. That's what's happened here. I know he's coming from the French tradition, but they've had a similar growth in the role of the state over time. And so for somebody else to, especially a global body, I mean, if that's who's determining what this tax, this global wealth tax would be, I mean, that's even worse than Washington determining what, what and how I should be taxed because I'm, That's so far out of my control. I have no way to influence what happens there. But that they're going to determine what's reasonable and what's rational. And what's in the social utility. And then he talks constantly, I already said this about democratically, having this be a democratic process. Well, democracy, I mean if you have 51% of the people supporting, yes, of course we want stuff to be taken from the top 1%. Because they think it's going to be distributed down to me. And I'm going to be better off. I'm going to win from this scheme and somebody else is going to lose. Because it is ultimately a zero-sum game. That's what this is. It would be redistribution in some way. He doesn't really say what he expects or what he would expect this funding to go toward. But it's a zero-sum game. And that's the reason why, if it was democratically controlled, that's the reason why these people would support it. Would be would be because they think, I'm going to be better off because the richest among us are being taxed and I'm not going to be touched by this. But that quote scared me. And using any sort of arbitrary terms like that and assuming that these technocrats can determine what's reasonable and what's rational, that they can tinker around and all they've got to do is tinker in order to find the optimal solution rather than relying on principles. That's one of the worst vibes I got from this whole book is that it's all about these. Like, I think that through open democratic debate and through the advice of experts and all opinions being heard, we can come upon the optimal solution for this crisis. Whereas I'm much more about, okay, what are, the, what are the principles that we want to live by? What do we value? And then what policies do we put into place that reflect those values? And I don't see any values coming out of Piketty's work unless you consider statism a value that's really all that I got from this entire book but it is funny to see and I just kind of came across this quote as I was scanning through all the ones I had written down but he said himself that taxpayers loved this system in the past I'll, I'll read the quote loved the system in the past that basically didn't require authorities to enter their homes or require them to list out their accounts And he actually said a sentence that taxpayers loved this system for that reason. Yet he advocates a system where now we need to be accountable to a global authority and list out our assets or have our assets inventoried for us by this body. And you think that that's going to be liked by taxpayers across the entire globe? There is no way. I mean, it's already an arduous enough process i'm sure it's similar in europe i the only two tax systems i have any experience with are canada and the u.s and they're both quite similar i've experienced the canadian system because my wife is canadian and she earned income in canada last year so i had to fill out a a canada and ontario return up there as well as a u.s federal return a north dakota state return and a new york state return it was a complete mess but those two systems are similar, so I assume that Western Europe is pretty similar in terms of the taxes they impose and the type of burden they put on businesses and, and other individual taxpayers to, to pay their taxes. So I can only imagine what this global system of taxation would look like and the type of burden it would put on you. But here's the quote. For instance, the door and window tax is based on the number of doors and windows in taxpayers in a taxpayer's primary residence. Which was taken to be an index of wealth. Taxpayers liked the system because the authorities could determine how much tax they owed without having to enter their, their uh, without having to enter their homes, much less examine their account books. Sorry about that. My handwriting is messy, so <laughs> a couple of those words were written out pretty uh, pretty messily. But he was using that to try to support the idea that well, if we had this this uh international sharing of all financial data then this global body would be able to just send you the list of your assets and then calculate the tax that you owed for you uh but i think it i think this hurts his case far more than it helps and i know from personal experience and from talking to anybody that the the more intrusive a taxation system and a, a taxation system in which they need to go and find out every single asset you own and list those assets out and calculate your tax for you based on those assets is intrusive. I mean, that's the definition of, it, of intrusive. Needing to find out everything that you own in order to calculate the tax that you owe. It's intrusive enough having to provide all the income that you that you earn. So I can only imagine also having to do the same thing with assets. I know that you wouldn't necessarily be doing it personally. In his ideal world, it would be done elsewhere, but I'm sure there would be huge errors in this system. Think about having to do that for billions of people across the planet. I can only imagine the inefficiency of that system and how much it would cost to administer all of it. And he doesn't even get into that. Uh, But I think this flies in the face of of what he's saying. If there needs to be taxation, if we agree that there needs to be taxation, uh, and I'm willing to debate that or talk about that on a different podcast, I don't want to get into that discussion necessarily but it needs to be done in the least intrusive way possible and it needs to be done on the least productive economic activities and saving and holding capital is a productive activity and saving a majority of the income that you earn off cap off of your capital is a productive activity and what will happen and i think the flaw with his r is greater than g Uh, Model is that people will continue to accumulate capital while R is greater than G. They'll continue to allocate it to poorer countries where probably there's a higher return on that capital. So yes, you may see inequalities perpetuated over the next century or so. You may see that happen. But over time, capital will level, or the rate of return on capital will level off. And the more that people would accumulate, the less the return... On capital would be, and we will come to an equilibrium point. That's what ultimately will happen, and that's what should happen. We should not punish the accumulation of capital because the accumulation of capital is a good thing. That's just like the earning of income is a good thing. I mean, anything you're going to tax is presumably a good thing. Um, if you're going to tax consumption, consumption is good. I, I think it's it's far less. It's a far less productive economic activity than saving or earning income, uh, which is why I favor, if, if there needs to be taxation, some form of consumption tax. Uh, but the saving of capital is good, and it's good whether very rich people do it or whether poorer people do it. And I think what Piketty showed is that there's been a growth of a middle class, a uh, uh, property middle class that really hasn't been there anywhere throughout history. And he's trying to imply that this middle class is going to be eroded away by capital accumulation by the top 1% and uh, you know maybe top 10% if we're going to extend it a little bit further. But he's most worried about the top 1%. But if anything, we should be very proud of the emergence of this middle class and be very happy at the prosperity that we have. I think the him talking about this global crisis of inequality – is very misguided i think you know, where we've gotten is generally pretty good compared to where we were at the turn of the prior century where you know majority of the people on the planet majority of people in the rich countries owned barely any capital whatsoever and now yes capital is still concentrated at the top of the economic scale but that's it's been that way all throughout history and it's going to probably be that way all throughout history and it's far more stark than income inequality is in terms of where capital is accumulated but there is this property middle class that i think he said that in the rich countries it averages about 200,000 euros per uh, per person in this property middle class and that is a that's a substantial amount you know it's not substantial compared to the fortunes he's talking about but i think if we look at the emergence of that middle class and I know he he would say that that middle class is eroding away. Uh, but really, the trends over the last century have been good. And the only reason why we saw the capital income ratio come down so much was because of the world wars. And so he's implying that we need we need world wars in order to bring down the capital income ratio and bring down inequalities to A certain level that really hasn't been seen any at any other point in his data, or is the natural level at a higher rate? Is it closer to where we are now than where we were in the fifties or the sixties? I think the natural rate is probably closer to where we are now, and there will be an equilibrium point. I don't think this is going to be going off into infinity, or you know, going off to the top ten percent owning ninety percent of wealth, like he's talked about hyperbolically, like he mentioned hyperbolically in the book. I don't think that's going to happen because the rate of return on capital will level off if more and more people are accumulating capital. As if there's more capital, the rate of return by definition will fall. Um, and I also think his growth rate estimates may be a bit low. I think he's not taking into account the potential for a large-scale technological progress. And I think he's also factoring in the climate change issue and saying we need to spend more to deal with the climate change issue. And I think that he's being, uh, being too pessimistic in his growth forecasts over the next hundred to 200 years. And of course, if he's being pessimistic about his growth rate, that makes that R to G that rate of return on capital to the growth rate of income that makes that larger than it otherwise would be if his, growth rate estimation was higher. Um, So I think all these things contribute to just this analysis not really being worth your time to seriously consider. I would would recommend reading the book because enough people still quote this. It was such a sensation. It sold, I think, something like 2.5 million copies. Uh, So a lot of people have read this. A lot of people will use this book in arguments and try to say, well, you know, Piketty's basically proven that this is happening. This is why it's happening. And you can take actual examples from this book and be able to have a discussion about it. And maybe my discussion here, my review here, helps somewhat to be able to collect some of your ideas and go into it with some of these thoughts in mind. But I want to discuss that. I guess I did have enough for an entire episode. I'm just going to release this as one big, giant episode. I think this is the biggest episode I've ever had, the longest episode at the least. Uh, so I appreciate you listening. If you got all the way through it, I probably lost virtually everybody talking about capital in the 21st century. I know that that's not necessarily exciting for everybody out there but it's a big issue and you hear especially progressives talk about it all the time and and the progressives love this book i doubt many of them have read it especially the people quoting it they just think that oh well it was a bestseller and a lot of people have had good reviews of it so it must be right and this is what peekity advocates so it must be right uh and i doubt many of them have read through the 600 page book but i would recommend it if you got the time if you're able to come across it for cheap i wouldn't go out and buy it new or anything but uh if you've made it through appreciate you listening i'm gonna have another episode out hopefully sunday i think I'm gonna be pretty busy all day tomorrow but i've got another episode i'm thinking about doing how to talk to progressives and it's going to build on what i talked about today and really in my last episode too but how do we communicate with the left and really the a lot of the snowflakes on the left, how do you connect with them when there seems to be such a disconnect? And now we really need to form a coalition with them to be able to fight what looks like to be expansive government policies under Donald Trump. So that'll be an exciting one. that will be a fun one and, and a quick one, hopefully. It'll, it won't be, I won't be talking about rate of return on capital.